Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Just weeks ago, her follower count soaring, I'd quit my day job to manage her socials full-time. And now she was leaving without even a for sale sign as warning. This program features the work of 2022 writer Helen Anderson. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Michael Schmelzer, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. First question, would you tell us about your Jack Straw project? Sure. So my project is a collection of short stories. And I think about them as living in the space kind of between the, or at the intersection of the recognizable and the uncanny. And I was thinking about like, if there's a a thing that links them all, I would say it's the idea of human intimacy and often kind of the ways in which that kind of breaks down or goes wrong, often sort of as a result of some factor kind of being thrown in the middle of a relationship, whether that's technological or kind of an element of the stranger absurd. I am a big fan of the superhero origin story, and I love to ask writers, what is your origin story as far as your writing life goes? Have you always been a writer? Pretty much, yeah. I was a huge reader as a child, and I loved fantasy books, and I would, I loved to read in closets. I think there was something about the, um, like, shutting out all other stimuli um, so I could focus on the world inside the book. And so I think eventually I, I wanted to create my own fantasy worlds, and I had a secret folder on my parents' PC, um, probably hidden in, like, the the videos folder or something that no one looked in um, where I would write stories. When I was about 10, my family moved across the country, you know, started at a new school and made a new best friend. And we would write letters to each other as fictional characters. So I think she was like a duchess and I was her kind of long lost cousin And um, we were sort of like scheming to reunite or something like that. And I was undercover and as a servant or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I think building those worlds was a big part of my origin as a writer. That that sounds very Anne of Green Gables to me a little (laughs) bit. I love that. (laughs) You know, as an author, we often write in communication with other texts or other writers. Um, Who do you imagine your stories to be in conversation with? Yeah, I think this was something I talked a little bit about when I applied to the program. And there are so many, and mostly it's just people who I love reading um, and feel inspired by. A lot of those people do kind of surrealism or speculative fiction, which I've always loved. And so some of those are Karen Russell and Kelly Link and Helen Oyeyemi, who do these kind of amazing um, situations that involve sort of like mythical creatures or mm-hmm. or just like magical elements, but set in a very like 
kind of realistic tone. Like it, mm-hmm. it's also, it's kind of a magical realism. Lately, I've been reading some short stories by Alexandra Kleeman, who also does this truly surreal thing. She's been really useful for me in trying to write kind of shorter and even more absurd stories because she does this thing where she just throws away a lot of conventions and that's very freeing and it's good to learn from that. And then there's people like Curtis Sittenfeld, who I also really love, who writes kind of more pure realism, but has this way of capturing relationships in an amazing way. And her characters, their internal monologues are amazing. And she has this way of articulating kind of a complex set of feelings, but in a way that makes like complete crystal clear sense. And so I I really love that. And I've been trying to learn more from her doing that as well. So in your project description, you have the phrase um, intimacy mediated by technology. And I was wondering if you could expand on that idea. Like, how do you see technology influencing the way we communicate and connect with each other? And what about that fascinates you? Yeah. I certainly don't feel like I have a strong leaning, like, is you know, is technology good for our relationships or bad for our relationships? I think, of course, some of both. I think the interest comes from a place of kind of examining my own brain on the internet and things like the way I I kind of have all of these pieces of information that are kind of floating around in my head, but seem to have no, I don't remember the originating context. Mm-hmm. Um, because of like the context collapse on the internet, it's like, oh, they're, you know, a joke or someone's opinion on something or, you know, the fact that someone I went to elementary school with is now in med school. All of these are like just kind of bits of information that have no, I have no idea where they come from. And I think that that, I find that really disturbing. (laughs) So that's kind of one thing that doesn't have as much to do with intimacy or relationships, but I guess similarly, I think a lot about the parasocial relationships that I've developed with kind of people on the internet, um, you know, podcasters, YouTubers, Mm -hmm. people I don't know, but feel like I know. And I feel interested in the idea that relationships moving from kind of quote unquote regular relationships we have with people in person And what happens when those kind of turn into parasocial relationships where say like you lose touch with someone, but you're still kind of in touch with their like internet self, the self that they put forth on social media. And so I I think sometimes about then what happens if those relationships kind of go back to being in person and, and how do we navigate that like fluidity mm-hmm. um, between our internet selves and our in-person selves and can those kind of coexist and can a relationship be both parasocial and in-person at the same time and how do we navigate that? Yeah, in so many ways it sounds like you're almost talking about the way like poets will talk about writing in persona or whatnot. I mean, there are these images and intimacies that are at such different levels and it kind of happens unconsciously at times I feel like and I love what you said I think 
was it content collapse? Is that I believe context collapse? Yeah, yeah. I had not heard that phrase, and I find that really fascinating. And I think I talked to another Jack Straw writer previously, and they were talking about proximity. When you just take two random objects, put them together, your brain makes a connection. I Mm -hmm. feel like that probably happens on the internet so Mm -hmm. much, and just finding how our brain works is fascinating. I want to touch back on something you had said, and I find this in your stories. There's that sense of humor that you have. You you find these oddities in characters and their motivations. You mentioned in your Jack Straw application, you differentiate between what is merely clever and what is truly funny. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and kind of what is the difference for you? Yeah, you know, I'm not, 100% sure what I meant by that. Um, (laughs) But it sounds great. (laughs) I think I'm sure that that comment stems from an insecurity I have that whenever I write something funny, that it's primarily to kind of make myself look smart. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I think... um, I guess I would say, like, in reflecting on it, that to be really funny, something should have a strong foundation in a sort of truth, a sort of something we recognize about ourselves or the world. I was thinking about humor in writing and the book in recent memory that I've laughed aloud involuntarily the most in a while is the Idiot by Elif Batuman, which I think I also quoted in my application because the book is set kind of when email is brand new and the way the narrator talks about email as this kind of like record of her, the intersection of her lives with other lives, I think is the phrase mm-hmm. is, um, I find it really amazing, but that book is so, so funny. And I think it's because I recognized so much about my college experience in it and just kind of the absurdity of real life. And yeah, Batuman's amazing at that. Now we'll hear a selection from Helen's live reading. I knew I was in trouble when I saw the moving truck pull up in front of Lady Zidi's house. Just weeks ago, her follower count soaring, I'd quit my day job to manage her socials full time. And now she was leaving without even a for sale sign as warning. I pictured that truck pulling away like a magician's handkerchief, leaving Lady Zidi vanished. No way could I let that happen. I'm good at my work, maybe one of the best in the business or getting there. Lady Zidi is no chief mouser of the United States, C-Modus, whose media presence is all buttoned-up, har-har dad jokes, grudgingly written by some White House intern who's decently qualified to be president. (laughs) 
No, Lady Zidi is the real deal. That's why people like her. That's why you probably like her. <laughs> For example, Lady Zidi is hypnotized by infomercials, just like you. She sometimes falls asleep after dinner with her front half in the still greasy cast iron pan, just like you. <laughs> Lady Zidi was intrigued by the idea of a cereal milk latte, just like you, and like you was disappointed by the results, though that could be because cereal for her is hard kibble, and most of the time I feed her oil-packed anchovies. Those and salt and vinegar potato chips which she hacks down with a violence that communicates, I will experience this pleasure or die trying. <laughs> you don't deprive that cat of her chips. You look up how to perform a Heimlich on a cat and you stay vigilant. <laughs> Just like you don't deprive the world of Lady Zidi. Ethically, you can't. Besides, if they saw me reposting old photos, the anchovy company and all the other brands would withdraw their sponsorships. And what would I do then? So I grabbed a fresh bag of kettle chips and walked across the street to Lady Zidi's house. Trust me, I know as well as anyone that you don't own a being like Lady Zidi. She chooses you. And as far as the ladies 300K followers know, She's chosen me. My boyfriend doesn't understand why I continue to let Lady Zidi out at night now that my livelihood is tied to hers. And I can't tell him about the house across the street because he too thinks that she has chosen me and his belief helps make it true. When we fight, it's because he thinks I don't take my job seriously which is why he went back to his own place last night just after Lady Zidi went back to hers. How could I let a rising star like her just traipse around the neighborhood? In Lady Zidi's front yard, I scanned the bushes, rattling the bag of chips. Two movers carried a credenza out of Lady Zidi's house and down the front walk. I paused my rattling to nod at them. They looked at me with my chips and my old corporate sweatshirt. They nodded back. While they loaded the credenza into the truck, I stepped quickly through the open front door and into Lady Zidi's house. Hello, I called. No one answered. I had never been inside Lady Zidi's house before. Now it was filled with shrink-wrapped furniture and labeled boxes. An old person smell wafted off the wallpaper. Notes of fossilized soap, clipped obituaries, public access television, despair. I got this bad feeling like maybe I didn't know Lady Zidi at all. What did she get here that I couldn't give her? Meow, I heard then, muffled but unmistakably her and coming, it seemed, from a tower of cardboard boxes in the dining room. The boxes were marked in Sharpie. Some said Horizon Shores, others Donate. God forbid she had been marked Donate. Furiously, I ripped tape from the boxes. What I found was revolting. Soft leather shoes that looked permanently wet. <laughs> rolls of novelty toilet paper. The movers came back inside, and I slowed my frantic unboxing, watching them. They ignored me. 
They picked up a sofa upholstered in garish blue roses. For a second, I imagined Lady Zidi sleeping on that sofa. The roses actually would offset nicely the color of her fur. And such a modern cat against such a tacky background might appear cool, even subversive. <laughs> the meowing grew more urgent. Don't worry, lady, I said. And which lady would that be, said someone from behind me. Two women had entered the house through the open front door. I froze. Bunched ribbons of packing tape clung to my jeans. The one who had spoken was middle-aged, in lavender scrubs and a style of sneaker with cushioned soles that had been hyped by influencers about a year ago. A laminated name tag on her chest said in big, patronizing letters, Renata T. The other woman was very old and clinging to Renata's elbow, with a wisp of hair you could see right through. Her loose pleated slacks were soaked around the ankles. She smiled at me as if I were someone she recognized. As they approached, the wallpaper smell intensified. I could tell it was coming from the old woman. I had the sudden unbidden image of Lady Zidi draping herself around this old woman's shoulders, like one of those travel pillows, as she sometimes did with me. Was it possible? The old woman barely had shoulders, and it was hard to imagine Lady Zidi doing so without sliding right off, presumably taking the woman down with her. But what if this was simply evidence? What if Lady Zidi had worn the woman's shoulders clear away, like an eroded riverbank? And did this old woman know that if you pushed Lady Zidi's ears down so they turned inside out, she would brush them back with her paws one at a time, like a person miming, I'm sorry, could you please speak up? <laughs> what are these boxes, said the old woman, looking at me. Are you moving? I looked back at her, startled. Close up, I saw that the recognition in her eyes was only a veneer. I, I said, stumbling. But I knew what I had to do. I lost my cat, I said, I'll show you. I pulled out my phone and opened up Lady Zidi's page. Squares upon squares, in every one, a little Lady Zidi. Renata took the phone from me and held it close to her face, tapping and pinching to enlarge the pictures. Her eyes widened. Lady Zidi was hard to confuse for another. She was a normal tan short hair, except for a large white circle encompassing the whole of her face which made her look like the man in the moon. Oh dear, said Renato, lowering her voice. She told me to wait a moment. Then she knelt down and undid the Velcro on the old woman's shoes. Let's get you changed, she said brightly, leading the woman to another room. She wasn't supposed to see all this, Renata told me when she reemerged, gesturing at the shrink-wrapped furniture. But go figure, can only walk so long before she walks herself straight into a mud puddle. She shook her head. I plucked the packing tape from my legs and compacted it into a ball. Then Renata opened a door, and there was Lady Seedy in the laundry room. That's your cat, she said. Boy, did Mrs. Phillips have me fooled. Called it Cleveland. 
had the litter box, all the trappings. I think it even slept here sometimes. You must have been so worried. I scooped up Lady CD. She struggled a little in my arms. I'm so sorry, Renata continued. If I'd known, I would have returned him to you sooner. Lucky you showed up today. The memory care place doesn't allow pets, but he was going to her granddaughter so she could still see him sometimes. I stopped stroking Lady Zidi and looked at Renata. Oh, don't feel bad, she said. She'll forget him in no time. The house too, me, everything. Won't even be sad. For some reason, I thought about what my boyfriend had said to me several weeks back at a wedding where I was his plus one. When I met you, he'd said, squeezing my hand, I thought to myself, I'll never be lonely again. I thought that was a weird thing to say about a person. Lady Zidi squirmed again and I gripped her tighter. Renata gave her a little tickle on the cheek. Just do me a favor and use the back door, she said, so she doesn't see. After that, it didn't feel right to carry Lady Zidi straight across the street and just deposit her in my house. So instead, I took her to the pet store to get her a new costume. We picked out a little superhero mask and cape set. When we got home, the moving truck was gone and Lady Zidi's old house was dark. I put the superhero outfit on her, but it only made the feeling worse. I looked her in her blank moon face. All I could see was Mrs. Phillips asking for Cleveland. I imagined her in the memory care facility, the vapor of Lady Zidi playing hide and seek in her porous brain. I didn't feel like doing a photo shoot anymore and the cape was all wrong anyway. She looked like the moon dressed as a cat, dressed as a superhero. I had the weird sense that maybe she was the moon and now she was in my house. I posted to her followers that Lady Zidi was recovering from a traumatic day and would be taking a short break from social media. Then I called my boyfriend. I told him that he was right and I wasn't going to let her out again. She'd be an indoor cat from now on. Oh, he said, okay, that's great. I hung up and offered Lady Zidi a salt and vinegar chip. She didn't take it, but instead grabbed the bottom of the bag with her mouth and upturned it into my lap. She had changed. I could see it. Her followers probably would too. At that wedding, I had worn an outfit my boyfriend had excavated from the back of my closet, saying how much he loved it. I hated that outfit. How silly it all was, I had thought. Me taking up space among the couple's family and closest friends, getting seconds of their expensive food, appearing forever in their most precious photos, and also my boyfriend would have a hand to squeeze. I looked at Lady Zidi in her costume, and I tried reciting his line. I'll never be lonely again, lady. But I didn't believe it, and neither did she. Thank you.
Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiadelica. Our theme music is by Ron Park, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2022 curator of this program is Michael Schmelzer, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture King County Lodging Tax, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Maddie Lotz and Cassie Nicholson for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.